the first official flag for the state of Florida is possibly one of the ugliest you have ever seen. In the left corner of the flag is the American flag from that year, 1845, which consisted of the usual 13 red and white stripes along with 27 stars along a blue field, Florida being that 27th star. The rest of the flag is five stacked stripes. From top to bottom, they are colored as follows. Blue, orange, red, white, and green. Right in the middle of the orange stripe is an unfurling white scroll that reads LET US ALONE in capitalized blue font. If the image in your mind is extremely jumbled, I don't blame you. This flag is a mess. The American flag makes up the top left corner of the flag. There's a flag inside of this flag. Nothing about it is harmonic or pleasant or has any semblance of meaning. This may explain why, as far as historians can tell, the flag was flown only one single time on June 25th, 1845. Florida had been an official territory of the United States for 23 years up to that point. We had been passed back and forth for a few centuries, sometimes British, mostly Spanish. In fact, when the first American colonies were setting up to revolt, they invited the two colonies of Florida, East and West Florida, along for the ride, but we sat the war out. We remained a British colony, and then we were passed back and forth a few more times. Then, in the 1820s, the US and Spain formed a treaty and traded some land. Spain got Texas, America got Florida. As more and more territories became states in the 1840s, Florida was next on the lineup. We officially became a state on March 3rd, 1845, and our first statewide election took place immediately after. The governor when we were a territory was named Governor Richard Keith Call, and he ran to keep his job. William Mosley, a born and raised resident of North Carolina, snuck up out of nowhere advocating for agriculture and, more importantly, states' rights. See, Mosley was a Democrat. Up until the mid-20th century when the Democrats and Republicans effectively switched their platforms, the Democrats were highly in favor of states' rights, especially as conversations about the national abolition of slavery rose. The South survived on slave labor, and Florida was no different. By the time we seceded from the country in 1861, our population was a little over 150,000, and 60,000 of that population was enslaved persons. Before the Civil War was even a question, Mosley stepped into the job as governor and waved his flag high, advocating his party's central belief right smack dab in the middle. Let us alone. One of the first major conversations our official state legislature ever had was about this flag. A journalist at the time suggested that the flag's unusual colors were to represent, quote, youth, energy, purity, etc., end quote. There isn't any historical record of what the colors officially mean, though they were legally accepted as the colors of the state, which was apparently an official distinction at the time. As far as I can tell, this never changed, and the five strange colors still stand as our official state colors. Though many legislators found them to be garish and strange, they took far more umbrage with the slogan of the Democratic Party that was smeared across the flag. As soon as the inauguration was done, the Whigs Party, Whigs spelt W-H-I-G-S, declared the flag to be an inaccurate representation of the new state. The Democrats didn't understand the complaint, saying it, quote, probably represented the sentiments of most Floridians, end quote. Whether that's true or not, the conversation was brought up again and again for the rest of 1845 until it was officially adopted as the flag of the state of Florida 
on December 27, 1845. Our state government fought about this flag for six months. The flag, however, would stand for about 16 years. The same tide that prompted Florida Democrats to declare their solitude in 1845 was taking the rest of the country by storm. Governor Mosley didn't know it then, but that shabby mismatched flag would be the beginning of a trend in our imagery that lasts to this day of complicated images and hidden prejudices. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Every week, I take you into a story about Florida's history, people, and culture. The aim is to learn a little bit more about our unusual state and the things that make it tick. This week, to start off season two, we're talking about our state flag and all of its iterations, warts and all. At first glance, our current flag is very naval looking. The primary component of it is a red cross made of smooth lines that connect the corners and meet in the middle. You can almost see the red X and the white field up on a boat's mast, flapping high over the choppy Atlantic Ocean. This majestic look, however, is broken up by a colorful circle in the middle of the X, muddling the clean lines that the rest of the flag holds. This central circle is our state seal, which is actually the most exciting thing about the whole banner. A burnt gold circular border around the seal reads, Great Seal of the State of Florida on top, with In God We Trust along the bottom. The seal itself is complex, and flapping in the wind, noticing all of those details is difficult. It's actually an image of a landscape with a pair of ships sailing toward the coast in front of a setting or rising sun, it's hard to tell. In the foreground is a beach where a palm tree and a fern frame a seminal woman in traditional seminal clothing. She is standing on the coastline, her hair in a bun, wearing a long blue skirt. The most seemingly symbolic detail is the cascade of a dozen red-white flowers that are pouring from the woman's hands, making a little pile on the sand. The colors are simple, brown, yellow, green, blue, red, but the lines on the art are so intricate that at a distance, it looks like a colorful jumble rather than a complex landscape. This seal wasn't adopted until the 20th century, but that red cross on the white field existed for years before a European even set foot on Florida's shores. Officially, this flag is called the Cross of Burgundy, and it was adopted 500 years ago when Spain was officially formed as a unified kingdom. Up until that point, a handful of smaller kingdoms lived on the Iberian Peninsula where Spain and Portugal are today. In the late 1400s, the conflict between the various religions on the peninsula grew to a boil as the Spanish Inquisition pushed the Jewish people out of that area. At the very start of the 1500s, another blow was delivered as the religion of Islam was officially outlawed. Even as explorers were crossing the Atlantic to expand the Spanish Empire, the nations that would soon be Spain were making big changes. They'd violently change the culture of their state, expelling people that the Catholic Church deemed unworthy. In 1469, when Isabella I of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon married, it united those two kingdoms. Their only son died, and the role of heir fell to Isabella's nephew, Charles, who became Charles I in 1519, just a few years after Ponce de Leon landed on our peninsula. The Cross of Burgundy was the house symbol of Charles's father, Philip, who was the Duke of Burgundy. 
Thus, the flag became his empire's official symbol, flying not only over his nearly 40-year reign, but also flapping above the Spanish masts as their boats crossed the ocean. In its original form, the Red Cross had a sawtooth design along the lines, creating a more dynamic image. It soon became the symbol of Spain, Spain's army, Spain's navy, and most importantly, Spain's colonies. The Cross of Burgundy, with its deep red lines and blistering white field, became the first European flag to fly over the state of Florida. Our first official state flag wouldn't come until 1845 when, of course, the multicolored nightmare flew at the inauguration of Governor Mosley. Though it's believed that we never flew it again after that very first day, it was as close to a state flag as we had until the 1860s. The only official reason we changed our state flag at all was because of the American Civil War. In terms of our involvement in the war, Florida honestly had little impact, especially for the Confederacy. It had been coming for a few years as the economic line between the North and the South grew wider. The South's economy depended on slave labor to survive, which the North had begun to disparage. The South found that criticism to be hypocritical as Northern states still bought the Southern cotton. Abraham Lincoln wanted to emancipate the slaves, and the southern states found that action to be an overreach of the federal government's powers. A month and a half after Lincoln was elected, South Carolina seceded. The following month, Mississippi would join on January 9, 1861, and Florida seceded the very next day, January 10th. The small number of free Floridians in the state were very much in favor of the war. As secession neared, communities were printing up and flying flags that represented their eagerness to do so. One group called the Ladies of Broward's Neck whipped up a complicated little flag to express the moment. On the right half are seven bars, red and blue and red and blue. On the left half is a blue circle with three large stars in the middle. One reads SC for South Carolina, the second reads M for Mississippi, and the third is an F for us. On the top of the flag, it reads the rights of the South at all hazards. It was presented at the official secession ceremony and was hung in the state capitol, though never officially adopted. It stayed there throughout the war. One story reports that it finally came down when Tallahassee was taken by the Union Army and an officer kept it as a trophy. Our actual official secession flag was much simpler, with a simple seal that reads, In God is our trust, all blue, red, and white. It's actually a perfect symbol for our role in the war. Insignificant. Because we were literally surrounded by the ocean, a blockade was set up to surround the state by Union boats. No one got in, no one got out. Jacksonville was taken by the Union early on, Key West was the southernmost port in the state, and the Union held it for the entire war. The people on the interior of Florida suffered through most of the war, struggling every day for food just to survive. There was a few skirmishes in Florida, but only really one battle of note, the Battle of Olusty located at and named for a small city in the middle of northern Florida. It was a major win for the Confederacy, with the Union suffering the most losses. About 3,000 of the 11,000 soldiers in the field died. Olusty still remembers their names, and a state park today commemorates the battle as the largest of that war in Florida. The Confederacy lost. Florida rejoined the Union. We were directionless for a few years. We had no flag, a weakened government, and no growth. 
We built a state constitution, and one detail set forth in it demanded the creation of a permanent state seal. It requested a few things for that seal, including rays of the sun, a tree of some sort, a boat on the water, and a Native American scattering flowers on the ground. The original version included mountains in the distance, and the Native American man was wearing more non-traditional Florida clothing. He looked more like a Western Native American than a Southern Native American. This seal was set on a white field with In God We Trust written on the bottom, and that was our flag. It was extremely simple, but for the first time, Florida had a flag that wasn't presenting an ideology of some sort. For the first time, it was about us. It's here where our symbology as a state could have taken a major change for the better. We didn't know who we were yet. We were just a pawn to various ideologies, whether it was Spain's unification or the beliefs of early Democrats or the deep rifts of the Confederacy. Nothing about our iconography reflected us, but that's not anyone's fault but our own. The seal was the first time that it felt like ours. Many flag designers say that seals are ugly on flags, and the white field resembled a flag of surrender more than anything else, but the seal was a combination of everything we were. Our seminal heritage, the Spanish growth, the natural splendor. In 1868, that flag was us. And then, at the turn of the century, Governor Francis Fleming changed all that. Fleming was a born and raised Floridian, born in what would soon be known as Jacksonville in the 1840s. At the age of 20, he enlisted in the army and fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. He served under four different Confederate generals, including Robert E. Lee, and was wounded in battle. After, he became a lawyer and was elected to the governorship in 1889. He was a staunch Democrat and a segregationist, explicitly anti-black, and even had Florida's only black judge removed from his position. A story for a different episode. Fleming was outspoken, brutal, and set in his ways. He was out of the office for a few years when, in 1900, a referendum of all white citizens met to change our state flag. The early Jim Crow laws were growing in popularity, separating citizens of color, particularly black citizens, from the white citizens throughout the South. Slavery had been over for nearly 40 years, and survivors of that war were still fighting it. Many Southern governments were seeking to make sure no one forgot the Confederacy or what it stood for. Where best to represent that idea than on your state flag? Mississippi was first in 1894, propping the Confederate battle flag in its top left corner, a blue cross with stars on a red field. Then Alabama joined, a simple red cross on a white field in 1895, exactly the same as the Cross of Burgundy. Only a few parts of Alabama had ever been owned by the Spanish, so their Spanish connection was flimsy, their Confederate connection was strong. Florida followed five years later in 1900 with pressure from Fleming. The very same red cross was added to our flag and our seal was simplified, but the cross, for some, spoke loud and clear. That flag lasted until the mid-1980s when a slight redesign left us with our current form, intricate seal, clean-lined cross. Historians debate the purpose of the flag to this day. One of my favorites, an author named T.D. Allman, says about the flag, quote, No one seems to notice that Florida's most conspicuous state symbol still celebrates armed insurrection against the United States. End quote. Others still debate that it's Spanish, a reference to our earliest colonial years. For many historians, there's no way to know. There's no official documentation on Fleming's intentions. His personal beliefs are all we have to go by. 
But we are not the state we were then, and we are not the state that we're going to be soon. Fleming may have had a say then, but that was 119 years ago. Currently, Floridians across the state are fighting for a right to tell their individual stories in their own individual ways. There's no denying that we have a troubled, complicated history built on the pain of those that society deemed unworthy. And even if our flag is an incorrect or unjust way to tell our story, the ideas and stories that we use to represent ourselves are the most public-facing way to show who we are. Across the state, Floridians are reclaiming their histories. One such place is Tavares, Florida. It was the hottest day of the year when I paid their Main Street protest a visit. The central road had been blocked by yellow barricades and garbage trucks, and police lined the intersections and the back roads. If a visitor arrived in town on a whim, Tavares would appear to be a ghost town. Rather, this part of town has likely not seen so much traffic in a very long time. It just so happens that everyone in town is gathered in one spot, in an air-conditioned room right on the main drag that makes up the St. John Independence Free Methodist Church. Hundreds are packed into the small building, pouring out onto the front porch. Across the street, people in white shirts hand out fans that read, Unite for What's Right, with huge coolers filled to the brim with bottles of water. Inside, people are speaking, and as 11 o'clock approaches, a choir sings a song to begin the march. Trickling out the front door, folks move toward a central line in the middle of the street. Within a few minutes, the marching begins. Everyone in town has gathered to protest one man, Edmund Kirby Smith. He was never a resident of this town, and it's doubtful he ever visited Lake County in his lifetime. He was born in St. Augustine in May of 1824. He graduated from West Point in 1845 and joined the United States Army where he served until 1861. Then, when he seceded from the Union, he joined the Confederacy and was a Brigadier General in the Confederate Army by June of that year. He fought in Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Texas, where he would eventually surrender. He fled the country for a few months, but soon returned and became a math professor at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. There, he died on March 23, 1893. He was 68 years old. In 1922, a statue of him was given to the National Statuary Hall Collection in Washington, D.C. He was one of the two Floridians chosen to represent the state. The other was Dr. John Gorey, our old friend who invented air conditioning in Apalachicola that I talked about last month. General Smith sat in D.C. for nearly a century until state legislators a few years ago decided to replace him. The new statue will be of Mary McLeod Bethune, a black educator who helped found Bethune-Cookman, one of Florida's oldest historically black universities. The old statue of General Smith, however, had nowhere to go. Different state organizations bid for it, but the victory went to Bob Grenier, who serves as the curator of the Lake County Historical Society. Last month, the county commissioners voted to approve the move in a 3-2 vote. Despite having no relationship with the town or the county in the slightest, General Edmund Kirby Smith is slated to arrive in Lake County sometime next year. To make matters worse, the Lake County History Center where he is headed is located inside the former Lake County Courthouse, a statuesque stone building in the middle of Tavares. It is there that, over 70 years ago, notoriously racist Sheriff Willis McCall tortured and wrongfully prosecuted the Groveland Four, a group of young black men who were wrongfully accused of assaulting a white woman. But it's more than just the Groveland Four. It is believed that Willis McCall tortured and wrongfully imprisoned dozens upon dozens of people of color in his county throughout his tenure. 
As Lake County attempts to move on from their complicated history, many residents, including several mayors and city council members, see the general statue as a step backwards rather than forwards. Send it back. Send it back. The march was organized by Pastor Michael Watkins, who has worked diligently for over a year to prevent the statue from coming to his community. His community was at his back this day and filled with energy despite the heat. Many marchers knew each other by name and would grab each other for quick embraces, the passing of a cold water bottle or just an appreciation at their presence. People were angry, certainly, but they were together and that seemed to soften the pain even a little. As the march took off, I hung near the back watching signs as they passed me by. A foam gravestone in the hands of one woman read, Rest in Peace Jim Crow. Another read KKK, which stood for Kirby Can't Come, the last two words being spelt with K's. Most everyone was waving their free signs, which worked as much as a fan as it did as a statement of dissent. Most everyone chatted and occasionally would start up a conflicting chant that would throw off the rhythm. A man near the front pounded a drum to keep the pace, but the sound didn't carry this far back, and the older residents started to lose the chant as the walk went on. Near the back with me was a woman who had not been shouting. When we bumped into each other on accident, she quietly informed me that she wasn't chanting along because she didn't have the energy for it. I smiled and said I understood, and we kept walking toward our destination, that courthouse. There, a dozen spoke, including mayors and city council members from the whole county. Chants would pick up and fade in a few moments, but the energy was there. Friendly individuals would mill through the crowds, handing out bottles of water to the sweating gathered. The speeches presented objection after objection, ranging from city corruption to taxpayer conflicts. The biggest opposition was simply why. Why this statue here? Why this statue now? One of the last speakers was, to my surprise, the quiet woman who had walked with me for a few minutes earlier. She stepped up gently took the microphone, and proceeded to deliver an original poem. She commanded the space. The crowd had never been quieter. She spoke on racism and its history and its consequences. She spoke on the greatness of this country's people, the strength of our unity, and a future free from the past. When she told me she didn't have energy earlier, I did not realize that it wasn't because she was out of energy. Rather, she was saving it for this moment. She cut through the frustration to the core, beyond the taxes, beyond the politics, and beyond the fact that Lake County has no relationship with the general, we were left with one question. What is the history that we want to tell? There are rare moments when we get to decide on our stories. We are not bound to our painful past like concrete, but we cannot ignore those stories or the people that were hurt in their wake. It's a choice now, not only to be a better state than we once were, but to acknowledge the state we once were. The people of Tavares are a perfect example on how we have this conversation. They aren't suggesting Kirby's statue be thrown away, though I'm sure some would like that. Rather, they would prefer his story be told appropriately. He was a Confederate general. He owned a slave. He had minimal connection to Florida at all. Even though it's ugly, it happened. Ignoring it does us no good. It's not about whether or not we tell the story, it's how we tell it. 
The people of Tiberias suggest sending Kirby's statue to Olusti, the large Civil War battleground that commemorates our state's role in the conflict. It may not be a perfect fix, but it's a fix. Our historians may never know where the flag's cross came from, or why, but it is our flag. Whatever the flag's many symbols actually reflect is less important than whether or not we know our history, and whether or not we ensure in ourselves our ability to be better than it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is the season premiere of our 12-episode second season. I'm so incredibly excited about all of the fantastic things coming for this season and all of the wild, wonderful stories we've yet to explore. Next week, I'll take you to our East Coast at the site of a bizarre little theme park lost to history. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Your reviews help the show find new audiences and help its quality improve every single episode. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? I'm sure you know someone who would love this show. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I'm always looking for more. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week.